So, uh, as Chantal has said, the theme for this series is the, uh, the other three Dharma Viharas, uh, Meso being the first. So we're going to have two weeks on each. So this week and next week, we're going to be looking at Karuna, compassion. And then we're going to be looking at Mudita, sympathetic joy. And the final two weeks will be about Upeka or Upeksha, which is equanimity. And uh, they're all really Metta's response to the situations with which they come across. So uh, Karuna is Metta's response to suffering. Mudita is Metta's response to somebody's good fortune. And equanimity really is... um, well, I, I want to say it comes from wisdom. I mean, in a way, they all come from wisdom. But is that balancing where we can we can hold different emotions in our life without getting either um, overwhelmed or um, oh, over the uh, top? No, sorry, that was me. <clears throat> Overwhelmed or depressed, sorry. I, I no, overwhelmed or over the top, exuberance. That, that's something like the flavour of what I was going to say, where we, uh, our positive emotions spirals off. Um, so we're going to be following a similar format. I'm going to say uh, a little bit about <coughs> compassion to begin with. And um, particularly, I don't know how much you know about near and far enemies in relation to meta. It's quite a while since I've heard them talked about. But we will, I, I will be talking about that in relation to compassion and the other Brahma Viharas as we go through them. And I'll explain what they are. Um, and then we're going to be breaking up into groups, coming back, doing the beginning of a new meditation called the Karuna Bhavana. So again, Bhavana, this kind of becoming. Uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at suffering, um, and well, I, I was thinking, I, I've just been quite stirred actually myself by thinking about tonight, and um, well, it's a real question of life, isn't it? Suffering and what that uh, what that confronts in us. Um, and you know, I'm also very aware that I rarely, I rarely think about compassion as a, a, a tool for reflection. And it's not that I don't think I'm at times compassionate, uh, but it's a bit like as we've been exploring kindness. Sometimes when we've talked in our groups, we, we've done acts of kindness without thinking, "Oh, I'm going to be kind here." You know, there's something natural that can come. Uh, But, yeah, I I felt personally very challenged by uh, thinking more about this. And I think it was only about maybe 10 or 15 years ago that I realised that passion meant, like, suffering, you know, in terms of, like, the the passion of Christ. So compassion is, like, with suffering. So it's almost how do we hold suffering in our life? Um, and compassion, or, well, yeah, compassion is with suffering. And uh, it's a very active um, emotion. It's not, it's not a passive one. Um, and quite often you hear in terms of, like, Buddhism, of wisdom and compassion almost being said in the same breath. 
And wisdom is um, like an experience, and compassion is manifesting that experience in life. So if we only have an experience of something and we don't change our behaviour in accordance with it, it's almost as though, well, actually, what was that about? Uh, so really, compassion is like wisdom in action. Um, and Bhante, in What is the Dharma, says that true wisdom is always accompanied by compassion. So compassion is the expression of that experience for the benefit of all beings. Um, and really what we're trying to do with thinking in terms of karuna is we're trying to relieve people's suffering. Um, so I was thinking about it not... Sometimes we can look at the world dualistically. Uh, something is either, is either good or bad, uh, skillful or unskillful. And it's almost as though we need to adopt a mind that looks at suffering and the end of suffering. So that, you know, that's the response we have when we come across suffering. And I was, I was thinking about suffering being uh, really fundamental to the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, which is greed, hatred and delusion. There's a cessation of suffering, and there's a way to uh, suffering stopping, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. When, when I first came across this, I found it actually quite refreshing uh, to just acknowledge that there is suffering in the world and that we probably all suffer to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, you know, we have our ups and downs. Uh, some of them are more major than others, either in our personal lives or in the world. And it's almost as though, well, I, I think I've been brought up in a culture that almost wants to deny suffering or that almost promotes that suffering is unacceptable and something to be avoided. And I think the more we were able to confront it, then we um, we can hold that fact of life. Um, I was going to say a lot easier, that's not the right world. But it's almost as though because we have suffering in our life, because we have our ups and downs, then to deny it is almost to um, fabricate a reality that is not a true reality. And it's almost so we're trying to live our lives on a fabrication <coughs> rather than an actual fact. And uh, uh, somebody was mentioning downstairs in the tea area, uh, I was thinking that myself today, of, we celebrated the Buddha's final passing away on Saturday, his Parinirvana. And somebody gave a talk in the evening who works in a hospital in an A&E department. And he gave some really graphic examples of people suffering and what we may might face in relation to our own death. And I think sometimes we need a bit of a wake-up call to acknowledge the suffering that actually is around us. And I, I felt that I got that uh, spur to wake up on, on a Saturday. And, 
Yeah, well, personally, I feel it's a bit of a relief to think that life is suffering and that there is suffering. And personally, because of the Four Noble Truths, I don't find that pessimistic because we're being, uh, we're shown the path as to how to deal with it. You know, and there is obviously major grief and violence and hardship in the world. Um, and what we're trying to do with the with compassion is trying to respond to those um, situations with a heart full of love rather than hatred and or resentful. And um, I'm I'm still struck by something that Mahaprabhu said months ago about you know how we need to forgive the bankers and you know these things are happening in the world and how. Yeah, we need to uh, develop a different approach to to them. Um, yeah, and just thinking a bit about what I, w- I was saying before about needing to develop this mind that sees suffering and the end of suffering. If we do that and we're doing that with love, then we we do develop compassion, or compassion is the appropriate response. So to be compassionate is to wish a being, or all beings, to be free from pain. It's wishing them peace. It's wishing them to be without that suffering. To be compassionate is to sense from within what it must be like to experience someone else's, someone else's experience. And um, yeah, sometimes I've given an example here in the past of when I was on solitary years ago and the Dunblane massacre happened and I needed to get some more food and I went down to the local garage and the newspapers were all full of those headlines and I bought a paper and took it back to my caravan and uh, I cut pictures out of the families and some of the victims and you know I had an immediate compassionate response to them but I was completely surprised by having a compassionate response to the man who'd done it and you know now I I can't even remember his name but it was as though and I don't know whether it was because I'd been on solitary and I'd been meditating for a couple of weeks by that time um, to just think about the mental state that he must have been in to do that. Um, well, I surprised myself and had a compassionate response to it rather than condemning this man and feeling hatred for him who'd done this abominable, abominable act. Um, and I, I was reminded of, in fact, Bridie's just no, Teresa's just mentioned it, a book by Sharon Salzberg on, kind, on loving kindness. And she gives an example of, she's coming back from the Soviet <coughs> Union and she's at, um, like, at passport control. And this man looks at her for about 10, looks at her, looks at her photograph, looks at her, <coughs> looks at her photograph. And she experienced his, his look as being... Uh, full of hatred and after about 10 minutes he eventually gives her her passport back and she can move on and she meets her friend in the lounge and she's really quite upset by this and then she thinks gosh you know if he's like that for most of his waking hours 
you know, again, what kind of a mindset must he be in? And she just felt really compassionate towards him. And I'm just going to read you another example that um, really moves, well, it, it never fails to move me. And it's from Brian Keenan, who wrote An Evil Cradling. And he was one of the Beirut hostages in uh, the mid-1980s. And he's been, he was a hostage for four and a half years. And I think by about this time, he's probably been captive for about three and a half years. Um, <coughs> sorry, I'm just checking timing. I, I will read all of it. One afternoon, when the other guards had left Saeed alone with us, John was dozing, tired from the constant early morning prayers which ripped into our sleep. I lay half awake, trying to enjoy what little sunlight filtered through the guard's side of our room. The sheet that separated us from them was hung just above head height, and with the high ceilings of this old Arabic building, we could catch some light. Saeed was moving about restlessly. The radio was on. Saeed always needed noise. He needed to distract his mind, and this was common to many of our captors. He began talking to himself, speaking words in English, which he'd obviously heard from TV, from those violent films. For hours, they all watched them in awestruck wonder. Saeed spoke. You bastard, I kill you. You bastard, I kill you. Bastard, 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 he repeated, trying to imitate the aggressive manner in which he had heard the expression used. Then he was moving about the room again, distracted and restless, as if he was looking for something, anything to occupy him. My own mind was equally restless, seeking out something on which to concentrate and evade the crushing boredom of the coming hours. The room was flushed with the morning's half-light. Birdsong sparkled softly outside. Saeed and I were caught up in our mutual rapture, drifting heedlessly around one another like fish in a tank. Suddenly the dreaming silence was shattered. Saeed was weeping great shuddering sobs. This was a different kind of weeping from the automatic religious melancholia of his prayers. He walked around the room crying. The whole room seemed to fill up with his anguish. I felt, as I had never had before, great pity for this man, and felt if I could I would reach out and touch him. I knew instinctively some of the pain and loss and longing that he suddenly found himself overwhelmed by. The weeping continued. Saeed became fleshy and human for me. Here was a man truly stressed. His tears now wrenched a great wellspring of compassion from me. I wanted to nurse and console him. I felt no anger, and that defensive laughter which had before cocooned me was no longer in me. I lay on my mattress and looked up over the top of the sheet. Saeed's shadow, caught in the sunlight, was immense. 
It flowed up the wall and across the ceiling. He was now chanting, fleeing from his sadness into recitation. His hands were clasped on the top of his head in a gesture of prayer. His body swayed and turned in a slow chanting circle. The room was filled with his eerie shadow and the slow rhythmic utterances choked with sobs. At times his voice broke and he cried out in desperation for Allah. I felt my own tears. I was transformed with a deep and helpless love for her. And when I first read that, I was just completely amazed by that he could feel that, given all the uh, atrocities that uh, he and the other captives had been subjected to. And I just felt that I, I would like to aspire to that. And it's almost as though I just... Well, I was going to say I almost have no confidence. I, I don't know how much I can rely on my practice to know how I would respond in that kind of situation. And, um, yeah, well, I just found that very, very moving. Um, and I, I was thinking how, you know, yes, there are horrendous things happening in the world, but actually compassion can be also about small actions. And I don't think she's here tonight, but I, I've been thinking quite a bit about the example that Rosie gave last week of just buying a cake for a colleague of hers who um, had experienced a, a death in the family. And we, we were talking about it in terms of kindness and her being generous. But I felt as though that was a real act of compassion as well, that she'd seen something, somebody suffering. And, you know, there's no way that she or any of us can take away that kind of suffering of, of grief that people need to experience when uh, they've been bereft. But we can respond with these um, small acts of kindness and compassion. And... Yeah, I, I've just been very, very moved thinking about that during the week. Um, so I, I just want to mention what I said briefly um, about these near and far enemies. So the far enemy, uh, in a way, is fairly straightforward. It's almost, well, it's like the complete opposite of the uh, quality that we're trying to develop. So for Mesa, the far enemy is hatred. Uh, for Karuna, compassion, it's cruelty. But the near enemy, uh, I think we can be a bit fooled by it. It's almost as though, what it is, it's, it, it's as though the near enemy is like a negative quality that is almost so close to the positive one that we're trying to develop that we might think that we've, we're touching on the real thing. So for Meta, it's sentimental attachment, and for Karuna, it's uh, sentimental pity or horrified anxiety. And um, yeah, actually, Chandana is going to be giving some 
giving us some examples of, of those in his own life. Um, and I, I was thinking one example for me for cruelty is, um, and I, I feel very ashamed saying this, um, it's quite a few years ago, and somebody who I used to work with, who I was no longer working with, was having uh, a hard time. And I felt really pleased that she was having a hard time because she had given me a hard time. And it felt uh, like an immediate tit-for-tat response. And even though I knew she was suffering, I just wasn't able to respond. I didn't have a compassionate response to her. And, um, yeah, I, I feel very ashamed at that response. Um, and I, I think sometimes, you know, we might feel horrified anxi anxiety when we feel that something is too much or too big for us. And we need to learn to um, to hold that. You know, if we've come from a culture where it's almost as though we think suffering shouldn't happen, then it's almost as though we need to gradually build our karana, our compassion muscles, rather than expecting <coughs> us to be able to uh, respond with a love-filled heart to whatever we confront. You know, I, I, I do like this idea of building muscles. You know, we, we wouldn't dream of running a marathon <coughs> without doing all the preparation beforehand. And I think, you know, whatever quality we're trying to develop, we need to do it bit by bit, and then it will build up, and we'll uh, have an unconditional heart and be able to run a marathon type thing. Um, and I, I think, you know, gradually we need to uh, acknowledge our pain and then gradually open to it. And the more that we open to it, then compassion will will arise. And I'll just finish with, um, well, through practicing the Brahma Vihara of compassion, we develop a mind that is vast and free from enmity. And this is a boundless and unconditional love. Um, actually, I will just mention two of the bodhisattvas who are particularly concerned with compassion. So <coughs> some of you will be familiar with Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, whom we recite uh, the Heart Sutra in, in relation to him. And quite often he's represented as an eleven-headed, thousand-armed being. And it was as though he shattered in relation to seeing the suffering in the world. And he uh, came back together with all these heads and arms so that he could see the suffering in all directions and have all these arms <coughs> with implements to help people. And the other one whom you may not be so familiar with is Shitagaba, who uh, is often associated with the hell, re hell realms of people who really are... Uh, in the hell realm of suffering, and he goes down into those hell realms to alleviate people's suffering, whether it's mental or physical suffering. 
So I'm just going to hand over to Chandler for him to give some of his examples. So I think I approached this um, this part of the evening or preparing for this part of the evening um, from the point of view of, well, it would be a good thing to just have some examples uh, of these these various um, responses that Daimala has been talking about um, a little bit theoretically. Um, some examples that are sort of sufficiently personal to to bring them to life. So that seemed quite a um, quite a harmless project in a way, put in those terms. And then I thought about the nature of the examples I could use because, well, I do want them to be um, true and personal to me. And something that struck me quite hard really was uh, they are quite painful. Um, so we're entering into quite a, quite a sort of um, tender, sensitive area here. Um, and that really struck me by, well, the fact that I was preparing some, some personal reflections. So, um, so to some extent, I'll be quite revealing, I suppose. Um, it's quite important that this is not, um, well, we can't talk about compassion and we can't talk about the enemies of compassion either. Um, in, a, in a cool and detached sort of way. That's, that's sort of missing the point, obviously. Um, so it is, uh, well, as Daimal has already hinted, this whole area is, is something which is from the heart, which deals with difficult subject matter, uh, which brings, brings, brings up some, some strong feelings, some, some strong, strong responses. So just to, just to recap then, um, we can talk about the, the far enemy of compassion, which is cruelty. And it's fairly obvious how that works, isn't it? That cruelty is the absence of compassion. It's, if you like, the flip side of compassion. And then there are these more subtle, as we call them, near enemies. So that's to say um, sentimental pity and horrified anxiety. And, and we could say that both of these have qualities of, well, appearing to be compassion at one level, but not really quite hitting the spot. Sort of not really being fully where compassion is at, if you like. So I'll give you some examples of all three of those areas. And I'll hopefully um, conclude with an example which, which is truly compassionate. So, um, so in my defence, if you hear some, some quite unskillful stuff in the first three examples, at least there'll be something uh, a bit more salutary in the last one. Well, that's how I'm hoping it will go anyway. Especially as I've just discovered that it's being recorded. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I know Mahabodhi is quite good on the, on the editing um, side of things as well. So, okay, so let's, let's start at the opposite end, if you like, from true compassion. So that's to say cruelty. So we refer to this as the, the far enemy of compassion. So if you like, what compassion isn't. 
So I think that was cruelty. And I was also thinking in, I mean, coming, coming up to my adult life, really, bringing fast-forwarding to my adult life, and, and even now, I have to confess, there is a part of me, there is, there is a little voice in me that will, will look at um, conflicts that show up in the news and will take the attitude that, well, isn't it good that they got what they deserved? Yeah? You, you might even recognise this. So, I can recognise objectively in a conflict situation that... You know, I, I guess I have enough intelligence to recognise that there is suffering on both sides. But I'm equally capable of being really quite partisan and saying, well, their behaviour was far worse, far more reprehensible than their behaviour, on the other hand. And when that lot gave this lot a kicking, so to speak, well, wasn't that a good thing? You know, wasn't it what they deserved? So that, that cruelty is there again. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm not saying I'm wholeheartedly um, committed to that way of seeing the world, but there is certainly an aspect of me, there's certainly a facet of my personality which makes itself heard um, that will exhibit those characteristics. So... I wonder if anybody can recognise that. I'm hoping some people can, or I'll, I'll feel really quite exposed in this. Okay. So that's cruelty. So, so cruelty is the, as we've said, the far enemy of compassion. So then, um, moving as it were a little closer to home, we have these so-called near enemies. So, so let's first of all talk about sentimental pity. So the problem with sentimental pity, we're told, is that it's, it's a sort of inappropriate response. So we notice the suffering of other beings, and we do have a response to it, but it's not, it's not entirely helpful, and that's why we can say it's inappropriate. So a couple of examples that I came up with, and... And these are quite painful as well, actually. Um, so one, one concerns my, my brother-in-law, my, my late brother-in-law, of whom I've spoken um, on various occasions, actually. Some of you might recognise references to him, uh, my brother-in-law, Mike. Uh, so he, he died um, last March. Uh, of uh, an aggressive form of cancer and I went to see him with my sister that's to say his wife in hospital uh, in I think December of 2010 so that was that was soon after he'd been diagnosed as having this um, almost certainly um, fatal disease and fatal in quite a short time so big shock to me, um, let alone my sister or himself. So he'd, he'd only, we went along to the hospital, my sister Audrey and I went to see him in hospital down in Kent. Uh, 
And I was, I remember sort of working over on the journey, well, what am I going to do or say towards Mike that demonstrates um, my response to this, this shock he's been through? And I decided, and, and this is kind of the point in a way, I, I decided in advance that I was going to do something quite out of character really, because we had a certain relationship as brothers-in-law, and it was a good relationship, but it wasn't a sort of a tactile one, if you like, because he wasn't that sort of guy. He was a shaking hands sort of guy rather than a, you know, a man-hug sort of guy, if you get the, the picture. And we went into his, uh, his little hospital room, he had a private room, um, and he was sat there with his dressing gown on, looking a bit shaky. And I decided in advance I was going to sit beside him and put my arm around him and, and say something like, um, it's really good to see you, Mike. And as soon as I'd done it, I sort of had the feeling that it had kind of fallen flat, really. And so again, thinking back with the benefit of hindsight, what, what was the problem was probably that, well, my heart wasn't in it, in a sense. And what I mean by that was, well, I was shocked by his, his diagnosis. And in a sense, I was feeling his suffering, in a sense. But if I'm honest, I didn't really know how to express that to him. Maybe we'd never really had the sort of relationship that, that made it easy to have that sort of conversation. So I construed um, in a premeditated way a, a kind of gesture that I thought would say something a bit more, a bit deeper to him than we'd ever normally said. Um, and I don't think it worked, actually. It just made both of us feel awkward. Um, so coming back to, well, what is, uh, what is sentimental pity? Well, I said before, it's, it, it's inappropriate. So there was some sort of off-target response, if you like. I was fully aware of suffering, but my response wasn't compassionate in the true sense of the word. So I'll come round in, in a short while to what I think, what I believe is an example of true compassion. But for now, let's assume that that isn't one. That's, that's kind of missing the target in a sense. <clears throat> and why is it missing the target? Well, because of its inappropriateness. Um, what are we doing for time? Yeah. There was another one, actually, another one that I came up with, which, which was also a, a family matter. Um, <coughs> And which is also quite painful to recall. And this concerned my, my uncle, um, whom I was very, very close to. And he died in 2006 in uh, a sort of um, a long-stay psychiatric ward. He was, he was in his 80s and he had um, severe dementia by then. And the last time I saw him, um, this incident, he was in Devon, so uh, to see him involved quite a lot of travelling. 
And I travelled down on a number of occasions while he was getting iller and iller to Devon with my two sisters. So none of us was local. We were all making big journeys. And it wasn't a very frequent occurrence, necessarily. And I think it was six weeks before he died. um, And we had to... We had to take our leave of him in the hospital. Um, And I had a pretty strong hunch that, in a sense, this was it. You know, by the time we we got back to Devon, he wouldn't be around anymore. Uh, And again, I wanted to say something appropriate. And there just wasn't anything appropriate to say. Um, So I had to take my leave of him. And of the three of us my two sisters and myself, I was the one who got sort of choked up and couldn't really speak properly. And I think he could see that. And I think it didn't do any good at all. Didn't think it did. I don't think it did anything to make him feel any better that his, his nephew, of whom he was very fond, was you know, clearly responding, well, with visible distress. So my guess is that's, that's another example of missing the mark, of not exhibiting compassion, but exhibiting sentimental pity. Okay, so the other near enemy, as we say, of compassion is, is horrified anxiety. And that term strikes me as quite appropriate in a way. It it sort of tells the story. So my example of horrified anxiety is what is painful. And I'm sure we all have um, parallel experiences, if you like. So I think I consider myself quite compassionate, actually. I think I'm generally relatively good at responding compassionately as we hopefully we'll hear in a moment. But there are certain situations of suffering that I find just too much to take on board, in a sense. And one of those is torture. So if you take, you know, you only have to listen to the news for a week, don't you? And and torture will feature in some part of the world. Um, And sometimes you hear quite graphic examples of torture. And, you know, clearly that's, that's a very direct um, experience of suffering for those who are being tortured. And the problem that I feel there, the, well, what we say about horrified anxiety is that it's, um, um, it's ineffectual. So where sentimental pity is inappropriate, horrified anxiety is ineffectual. So in relation to hearing about torture, um, my response tends to be, especially if it's a graphic account of torture, um, something like, I just wish I'd never heard that in the first place. You know, this, this, has, this has ruined my day, hearing about this stuff going on, hearing about a bunch of human beings doing that to another bunch of human beings. I feel really bad about this. Why did I ever listen to that radio programme or read that news, newspaper article? Better that I'd never come across it in the first place. Yeah? 
And I think what's going on there, I mean, maybe you can relate to this, I think it's just that I've sort of exceeded my capacity um, for that, you know, that, that input, really. I'm just not ready for it on that occasion. And so you can see where I'm coming from, hopefully, when I say, well, well that renders me ineffectual. Um, there, is a, there is the beginnings of compassion there, but it has been sort of emasculated by my inability to deal with the information I've been given. I've simply been overwhelmed. Yeah? Does that ring any bells? Yeah. Okay. Uh, interestingly, I also have uh, much the same issue in cases of people befalling fates that have the quality of claustrophobia about them. So, for example, those guys that got stuck down a mine for months in Chile. And I think um, I have quite a personal issue with claustrophobia, actually. So I couldn't really relate effectively um, to their plight. My response was more a case of, hmm, I'd really prefer not to hear about this. Yeah. So we've heard about, I've spoken briefly about um, cruelty. I've spoken about the two near enemies of compassion, as we call them. Let's just conclude with um, a personal example, which, which I think was probably genuinely compassionate. So in 1985... 1985, I travelled to India and Nepal and like a lot of Westerners visiting um, South Asia for the first time was, was just sort of blown away really by the, the cultural gap between those countries and, and my own and uh, the sheer sort of... Um, raw poverty that it's very easy to see that you know the, the 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 pervasive suffering that you can very easily see wherever you happen to look in india and as soon as uh, as soon as i came back um so I'm not sure i'm getting my history exactly right but very soon after i came back the whole uh ethiopian famine thing was going on and i became um really very disturbed about um, just how widespread uh, poverty and famine and suffering are in the world. And I decided that, that I, I couldn't really I couldn't really hold my head up in a sense unless I did something tangible about it. And okay, I recognize that anything I might do would be very small and very personal. But nonetheless, it would be a damn sight better than just sitting around feeling bad, you know, maybe feeling horrified anxiety, if you like. Um, so, uh, some of you might remember an organisation called War on Want, which was, uh, well, it still exists actually, but it was a sort of um, campaigning charity organisation that pointed out the economic and political causes behind poverty, behind third world poverty. 
Um, and I made it my business actually to set up a local group um, in North London. And North London War on Want was one of the very first sort of grassroots, if you like, local groups um, working on behalf of, uh, well, raising consciousness about those issues um, in the community, if you like. And the group went on to become a region, so other, other local groups grew up around London. Um, and eventually we had a region for the whole of London, a sort of amalgamation of local groups. And I became its secretary. Um, and, well, in a sense, the rest is history. But what's behind that example is, um, so certainly not blowing my trumpet. I hope that's not what I'm doing. But I think it's a valid example of, well, um, I witnessed suffering and I decided to channel my energy into some sort of practical response to that suffering um, and to engage with it, if you like, to engage head-on with it in a practical way. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think it's my belief that that was an example in my, in my personal history of compassion. And I believe that there are others as well. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to leave that there, and we've got about um, 15 minutes or so before tea. Take a break about quarter past eight. And I'd just like to sort of turn, turn that whole discussion um, over to you, really. So I'm, I'm not going to ask people to um, give their examples to the whole group as I have. But what might be really helpful is to maybe to air some examples in small groups, so maybe twos or threes. So, so in a moment, if you'd like to get together in twos or threes, and, and just to remind you, this is, this is the scope of the discussion. This is where you, you can go if you wish. Examples of cruelty, examples of sentimental pity, i.e. compassion being inappropriate, or the response being inappropriate. Examples of horrified anxiety, where the response is ineffectual. And then examples of true compassion. Yeah, so, is that clear? Is that reasonably clear? Tandon, may I ask a question about horrified anxiety? Um, sort of, considering it from the terms of karma, in terms of whether it's an action or not. It seems to me that horrified anxiety is you, you've met something that causes you a lot of distress mm -hmm. and you're not capable necessarily of dealing with that or dealing with any more of it. So you turn away because those are your circumstances at the time and it could almost be a compassionate act to yourself to turn away from it. So, in many ways, horrified anxiety doesn't seem to be like cruelty. It's mm. is is an act that you've done, and there was an intent behind it. Horrified anxiety is a sort of something you have to do for protection. Mm. And so, it seems a very different. Kind
kind of thing. It's almost something you can't quite help yet because mm. you, you haven't built up the strength for it. Mm. So it's diff. It seems different when you, you've done something with intent and you can try and change that intent or stop that action. It doesn't seem like it seems like a different sort of. It doesn't have the same consequences, or, or it has, mm. or you just—it's it's just a protection. Mm. I don't know what, what you think. What about if you found somebody half dead in the road and didn't like it? Would that mean that you would walk away? Or would that mean that you would overcome that fear? And help I think it's very hard, isn't it? Because you—you can only do what you can do at the time, and and there's always. I think in spiritual life there's often this thing of you meet a circumstances and you wish you could be better than you were, but at that time you can't. And how you hold those deficiencies within yourself when you're you're not that strong yet, and whether you need to become stronger or have some reflection on these kind of things, I I, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't know. I, I think there's a uh, you point to an interesting um, thing there because. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, we can, uh, we're not in that situation, you know, we're not, um, it's not what we're kind of uh, doing or not doing that's the problem. That's the problem is like the state that we're in, you know, so it's like we're not calm enough or something or we're not grounded enough, you know. So it's a bit like that, but that has an effect as well, you know, so, so um, anxiety is, a, is, a, is an unscuffled mental state. Yeah, so, so it is, it, you know, it, it is uh, on, on a karmic level, it is, it is negative karma, but um, it is different from uh, you actually sort of, you know, a, a commission, you know, like doing something or, or not doing something. I, I have a question that kind of feels like it relates, is, could it be that the nearer enemies are more precursor to actually moving towards compassion, so there's like a continuum here of, you know, cruelty and then inability to react skillfully and then maybe being able to react skillfully. Because the second two certainly <coughs> sound, although you've not got there, you're not actually, um, like you say, you're not actually deliberately doing something cruel, you may be being ineffective, mm. but you kind of maybe trying to get there. Doing the best that you can, maybe yeah. at the time. So is it, is it maybe yeah. a precursor to being able to get there? Because surely we have to get things wrong sometimes when we're learning. Yeah. I think it is, and you know, I thinking about what I said earlier about just like acknowledging the suffering and then being open to it. And I think what you were saying that turning away might be a compassionate action. It might be, but that uh, compassion comes from love. So if it's uh, like you're really in touch with actually the love for yourself that you turn away. But if it's from because we, we're nearly always denying suffering in the world and that we're not even open to it, then in a way that's for me is the flavour of horrified anxiety. You know, it's like that almost like complete inability to actually look at that suffering and what's going on. You know, it's a yeah. It's that kind of it can be fixing, uh, sorry, it can be fixing horrified anxiety is often <coughs> trying to fix someone's yeah. suffering as well, isn't it? It isn't yeah. just turning away, 
it can actually create the response of wanting to solve it yeah. or wanting to control it in some sort of way and make it manageable and, mm. and understandable within our an experience that we can manage yeah. within our kind of yeah. big enough yeah. sort of thing rather than waiting and sort of accepting perhaps the feelings of being overwhelmed and then trying to stay in the space of those and be open to the other person at the same time. That's the way out of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 And the, I think there's a continuity actually between, uh, you know, from cruelty to compassion. Where with cruelty, you're neither in touch with yourself, nor are you in touch with the person. The, you know what's really going on, and, and that you know person as person. With um, sentimental pity, you're not really in touch with the person. You know, you've got some kind of image of them, you know, but it's not really them. You're in touch with yourself, though. You know, with with um, uh, horrified anxiety, you're in touch with the suffering, but you're not really in touch with yourself. <laughs> you know, you're not, you know, you can't stay with yourself, you know. And with compassion, you're in touch with both yourself and the actual situation, you know, so that's what makes it, you know, kind of effective. just want to say one thing about, it's about 11 years ago, I was working through Salford, this is why I was, I posed that question, and there was a guy in the road homeless person and I saw so I was walking up from from Manchester up through South through the university. I saw so many people walk past this guy who was unconscious on the road in the day. And these were medical students that I saw walking past. They just completely ignored me. I mean a friend we went to we barely beat me. So so many people just walk you know, where was the compassion? I think it's important to put compassion into action sometimes. Mm. You know, we called the ambulance and the paramedics came and they worked on him. And that was the last we saw him. But it was just shocking to see so many people walk past. Isn't it quite complex too that you know that when you look at the horrified anxiety, if you just if you just watch the news for an hour every day, there are so many situations where mm. I respect your example of you know where you got involved with the world of want, but we can't. Most of us, we can't. You've got to kind of find a way to watch. If you want to watch the news, you've got to. <coughs> it seems to me you've got to find a way. I've just been in London for the, for a few days, you know, and, and the stuff you see on the streets in London, you just you know, walk two miles down the streets and you see so much stuff you you can't. Yeah. I find it quite difficult not to feel horrified anxiety all the time because I can't. I feel powerless to yeah. do an, a, a, something about all of it. Yeah. So you have to. It seems to me you have to find some way of dealing with it. With Grant Laguna's teachings over the last couple of weeks and talking about anxiety and whatever and cortisol levels, having that anxiety or whatever about seeing something that distresses you uh, and will result in an emotional response. But looking back at Grant Laguna's teaching, that might be a, a really good opportunity just to go away and reflect that, oh, that's really scary at the time, I don't like that. I'm going but it will give you adequate reflection time that maybe to do if you acted with that emotional response it may be an unskillful action so it's actually 
positive to have that because you can have time to go away and reflect and come back with a skillful action. That's got maybe some bearing out on it. But how can we have these responses? They're so fast. You know, that you're right, you do have to have time to reflect because it's not something that you can predict. I was also thinking about our spheres of concern and our spheres of influence. So, uh, you know, our spheres of concern can be very broad, but actually we don't have an influence over those kind of things. So, you know, Chandler gave a very positive example of setting up a one on want, but a lot of us, you know, we, we might think of joining VSO or Red Cross type things, but we're not really going to do it. You know, we do feel ineffectual in that kind of way. But I think we need to acknowledge where we have a sphere of influence. And for a lot of, well, for most of us, the sphere of um, influence and sphere of concern are never going to meet. But our sphere of influence might be able to get larger. And, well, I'm just coming back to that example that I was reiterating about Rosie last week, of just giving that cake to a bereaved woman. You know, she, it was influence, it was compassionate acts. You know, we, we've got our areas where we can have influence. And I, I think, well, again, it's like Phil, I'm going back to this building muscles, building our muscles of being able to sit with suffering, be open to it, and then gradually act so that, um, you know, compassion is, is active. You know, not to give ourselves a hard time because our sphere of influence isn't bigger than what it is. Uh, Any little act of compassion has an effect. Absolutely. And somebody letting me out on the road in the car, I will immediately think, how nice, and let somebody else out. And that, I think, has mm. a knock-on effect. And that's what we can do, mm. at least yeah, all of us, mm. every day. Mm. And let's have 10 minutes just pairing up and then you can get some uh, sharing of personal experience. Mm.